Tis the season for summer road trip adventures. And Firestone Complete Auto Care's epic savings event with up to $100 off select services from June 6th to the 9th. Limited time offer, conditions apply. Go to firestonecomplete.com for details. National Outlet Shopping Day is back. Join us June 8th and 9th at Simon Premium Outlets nationwide. Score thousands of can't-miss deals from brands you love all weekend long. They've got up to 65% off every day. And the National Outlet Shopping Day deals are even better. Visit premiumoutlets.com slash NOSD to find a premium outlet near you. That's premiumoutlets.com slash NOSD. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. From WNYC Studios, I'm Brian Lehrer. This is my Daily Politics Podcast. It's Tuesday, January 9th. This year will determine who will be setting the national climate agenda, if any, for the next four years. And with today's news, did you see this, that last year was officially the hottest on record, and planet Earth keeps setting that record year after year during the 21st century, if you haven't noticed. That makes this election year even more critical. My guest today is a professor who studies direct action and resistance movements and who's stepping closer to advocating for them as we face this choice. Dana Fisher is the director of the Center for Environment, Community, and Equity and a professor in the School of International Service at American University and the author of the soon-to-be-published book, Saving Ourselves from Climate Shocks to Climate Action. Professor Fisher, welcome to WNYC. Thank you so much for having me, Brian. Do you want to reflect for just a moment to start out on this breaking news today that last year was the hottest on record and put that in some context? Absolutely. So um, this week we are expecting a number of different um, Earth observatories to release their assessments of the data coming from 2023 with regard to climate change and global warming, basically, the the average temperature over the past years, which they do all of this analysis to determine it. It ends up that depending on which of the two data sources that have so far been released, Earth was 1.4 plus degrees Celsius warmer than on average, which puts us very close to the 1.5 degree threshold that both the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change and the Paris Agreement identified as the threshold we wanted to stay below in order to limit the climate crisis and to limit the the degree to which we're going to be experiencing climate shocks around the world. Yeah. And, you know, I heard an interesting analogy, I think, on our morning show today um, about why 1.5 degrees Celsius, which doesn't sound like a lot, Mm -hmm. is considered so potentially catastrophic. Uh, for, you know, long-term global effects. And the analogy was, think about when you get a fever as an individual. Your temperature doesn't go up from 98.6 to 110. You know, all it has to go up to is like 100 and you're sick. And so that's, you know, I'm sure it's not a one-to-one analogy about how earth science works, but but I thought it was very interesting for people to kind of start to get their heads around why 1.5, such a small number, matters. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's also, I mean, that's a great analogy. I think it's also important to think about the places that are barely within what we consider to be a livable niche in terms of sustaining human life. And when I say the livable niche, that's usually defined as being able to live outside without a large scale infrastructure. 
thinking about places in the Middle East, places in the desert, places in Arizona, where we saw these amazing heat waves this past summer, and they're expected to be even warmer this year. Those are the areas that we need to worry about, as well as the ways that this type of warming is going to affect climate patterns more generally. We're about to, we're, we're under like a tornado warning here in Washington, D.C. right now. They're sending all the kids home from school. This is not normal for December, or sorry, mm. we're in January now. Yeah. It's not normal for January either. Yeah, we're getting the same system up in New York tonight. They haven't said tornado warnings, but, you know, another flooding event, yet another flooding event. One of the mm. reasons we're speaking to you today and not waiting until your book comes out is that an example of the direct action you're focusing on is supposed to happen this Friday when Joe Manchin is scheduled to speak at an event in New Hampshire that usually draws presidential candidates. So can you talk about who's planning to protest his appearance? Yep, sure. So, I mean, first and foremost, it's worth noting that uh, Manchin is doing this private event in New Hampshire. Uh, Many people are seeing it as a test for a potential run as a third-party candidate in the election. Now, Joe Manchin is a Democrat, but he also comes from the coal state of West Virginia and tends to be the most conservative on energy of anybody who is in the Democratic caucus. So worth noting here, the people who are organizing the protest on Friday is a group called Climate Defiance, which is a youth-led group that is relatively new. They only formed last April, and they have become the go-to group for doing this nonviolent direct action that is disrupting public events. And frequently they do it to block events that are being organized by Democrats or members of the the administration. And young people are being called from all up and down the East Coast and farther to to come into New Hampshire for the event on January 12th. They always are nonviolent, but they are very disruptive. And in this case, they specifically are calling to shut down the event. And it looks like your work uh, at American University is moving more from analysis of climate direct action to kind of a guide in your forthcoming book on how to be effective with direct action, if I've got that right. So, well, so talk about what you think the place of that is today. Well, let me just say that first, just to clarify, I I don't specifically have a how-to guide for doing direct action. I actually, um, in the book, I talk specifically about how the future and getting us to the other side of the climate crisis is up to us. That is why we have to save ourselves. And I Mm -hmm. go through all the research I've done in the past 20 years to study climate policymaking as well as activism around climate change to understand that at this point, the only real moment and opportunity to get us to put pressure where pressure is needed is to come from civil society, which is you know the section of the IPCC that I contributed to as a writer in the most recent round. So, so it's coming from there. I'm not saying that people all need to be doing direct action. What I'm observing as a scientist is that direct action, particularly nonviolent direct action, is becoming much more common and provides an avenue to the kinds of systemic changes that are needed to address the climate crisis. That's what I talk about. And the book ends by talking about the many ways that we can all contribute to saving ourselves, either by engaging in activism or as individual citizens in our communities. I'm thinking of, for example, last year at the uh, the U.S. Open tennis tournament in Queens, one of the matches was paused when a climate activist glued his feet to the floor somewhere on the U.S. Open grounds. And I would imagine that's a fairly climate-concerned crowd at the U.S. Open. 
and I heard the co- the question come up at that time. You know, does that foot gluing stunt make people more committed as opposed to more susceptible to backlash? Do you have analysis? Oh, I I absolutely have analysis. I mean, I can tell you this, and I I did a number of segments right after that event happened at the U.S. Open, or that action happened at the U.S. Open. I mean, first and foremost, let me just say that this type of uh, nonviolent direct action, which is very performative, is what in in the, the book I talk about a distinction because not all civil disobedience is the same, and there is civil disobedience that is focusing and aiming on getting public opinion, public attention, to potentially sway public opinion through media coverage. And those folks are doing what we call shock, right? They're shockers. And they are specifically trying to shock people into getting attention to the, you know, and drawing attention to the climate crisis. That's exactly what happened at the US Open, where this one activist glued his foot to the ground and basically led to a pause in all play. Now it's worth noting here that first and foremost, the actual athletes specifically said they supported the the sentiment that motivated this activist to glue his foot. Mm-hmm. And they ended up having a conversation about climate change, which is the goal of this type of shocking uh, through direct action. That's very different from those folks who are aiming to do what I call disruption. And disruption is really more about trying to embed civil disobedience into a broader campaign that is about drawing attention to a broader campaign and the types of other actions that can take place. But within the context of these kinds of actions that are very much about disrupting the general public, getting media attention, the goal is media attention. And you know the fact that we're talking about it today shows that it's working. I mean, that's why they do it. And the goal is then that we not only talk about the fact that that's happening, but then we talk about the issues. And research shows that when we talk about the issues, there are many people who are what we call sympathizers who are going to say, you know what, I want to do something about the climate crisis. Um, I may not want to glue myself. I may not support the, the group that's gluing themselves, but I'll do something. And so research shows that those people who pay attention to what's happening will tend to support more moderate factions of the climate movement or whatever social movement it is. So it's not very popular in terms of the specific group doing that kind of action, but it is extremely popular for mobilizing people who are supporters who may not already be doing something about climate change. Here's a caller, I think, who is a direct action participant, at least was at one high-profile event in November. Linda in Westchester, you're on WNYC. Hi, Linda. Hi. So I'm a member of Extinction Rebellion in New York City, and on November we disrupted the Metropolitan Opera in the opening of Tannhauser, and um, it was quite effective. We did two rounds of disruption. The first two disruptors were uh, up uh, high, and they threw down really long banners, and it was the opera was disrupted at a certain moment that had to do with the climate, and uh, the comment on the banner was a no opera on a dead planet, and uh, two disruptors were taken out, and then um, uh, uh, Peter Gelb went on stage and said, okay, you know, We've gotten the disruptors, and uh, the show Peter will go Gelb, on. The head, of, the head of the Metropolitan Opera. Go ahead. Yes, exactly. And as soon as the curtain went up, I stood up alone and started shouting, we are in a climate crisis. There's no opera on a dead planet. Within 30 seconds, somebody jumped over two aisles, um, ripped the sign off of me, ripped my necklace off, took me um, sort of like uh, in a hold um, by my scarf, and then disappeared. He was trying to assess if I had a bomb or something. 
And um, for the next uh, 10 minutes before I was escorted out, I was um, <laughs> verbally abused, physically assaulted. Um, I came out okay, and it, it was, I think, uh, an extremely successful action because we had over a 1,000 articles, the media paid attention, the comments, people were talking about it. Um, it was a shocker, and um, it was effective. And uh, this is what we do at Extinction Rebellion. How far do you think this thing should go? Should it be like, you know, no major arts events at any time or sporting events without being disrupted until there's sufficient climate action? Or you can do it at select ones, and that's going to get the media attention to um, be effective? Or what do you think about the ideal scope of this from your uh, uh, you know, perspective being involved? From my personal point of view, is that we need to be more creative because now the sports events are going to expect it and they'll have more security. The arts events are going to expect it, have more security. And so we're going to have to be more creative in what we disrupt. We have some ideas, which I'm not going to share. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, you, um, you sorry. Can I, can no, I just, can I, I just weigh in for a second? I'm going to uh, ask you to uh, tip off everybody to the secrets. Dana, go ahead. I was just going to say, Linda, thank you so much for sharing your personal um, experience. This type of violence against nonviolent protesters is extremely common. And I actually yeah. talk specifically about it and the way that it actually can elicit what we call moral shocks to the general public, which is an extremely mm -hmm. uh, useful tool for mobilizing the masses. It's unfortunate, but it is also very classic in terms of thinking about how radical radical flanks work in social movements. We saw it all the time in the civil rights movement. We saw it more recently um, in the protests after um, George Floyd was murdered. And so I'm, one, I'm, I'm really happy to hear you're okay, but I think that also helps to draw more attention to the type of issues that are mobilizing people to take to the streets and to stop art you know, arts events, and also this kind of discussion about tactical innovation and becoming more creative in the ways that you're going to get attention is absolutely the next step. Want a last word, Linda? Yes. I, I invite everybody to join Extinction Rebellion and help us uh, declare an emergency of climate in the globe. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Um, in our last few minutes, why... Why this Joe Manchin protest on Friday in New Hampshire? I mean, Manchin is nobody's idea of a progressive, obviously, but he did crucially come in out of the cold and support President Biden's Inflation Reduction Act, which was the biggest piece of climate legislation to date. He could have blocked it. We all remember how he and Kirsten Sinema were blocking other things that Biden was trying to get through at that time. But he came on board for the Inflation Reduction Act. So why target him at this time? Well, let me just clarify here that he did actually block it. He blocked it for months. He blocked the Build Back Better Act, which was the original act and the, the original piece of legislation. And the Inflation Reduction Act was a substantially pared down version of the Build Back Better Act which built off of uh, President Biden's original climate platform. And that is what passed. So he did uh, champion it and make it possible to pass through because of the type of bill it was. And for that, he should be appreciated. However, he did it by um, also negotiating a deal to open up the Mountain Valley Pipeline. 
and expand fossil fuel extraction, which is exactly the opposite of what everybody in the scientific community is saying is needed for us to address the climate crisis. So, so yes, it, mm -hmm. it's thanks to Manchin that we have the IRA. And that is a wonderful, huge investment in clean energy. And it is the largest and only climate bill that we've ever seen passed through both houses of the U.S. Congress. But Manchin also represents this kind of incrementalist, um, all of the above energy policy, which is absolutely not going to get us to where we need to go in terms of addressing climate change. And that is the reason that people are targeting him. I mean, the other, the other thing is, is ahead, I would just say quick. that um, Manchin is also expected, if he were to run for president, to pull votes away from President Biden, which will basically support and help the Republicans to win in 2024. We saw in an interview that one of the founders of Climate Defiance said, sometimes we go after Republicans, but Democrats are a much better use of our time and energy because we believe they are movable. Do you agree with that? Democrats are movable because most Democrats run on platforms that say they want to do something on climate change. But then many Democrats also are supporting fossil fuel expansion and extraction. And that is a movable position because that they're talking out of both sides of their mouths. Whereas Republicans say that there is no climate crisis and the only possible way out is to burn more natural gas. So that's not really a movable stance. But if somebody says they want to do something on climate change, but they are supporting fossil fuel expansion, they may very well be able to be pressured by the electorate, right? Dana Fisher, the director of the Center for Environment, Community, and Equity, and a professor in the School of International Service at American University in Washington. She is the author of the forthcoming book, Saving Ourselves from Climate Shocks to Climate Action. For people who got interested in you today, uh, you want to just people tell people when that book is actually going to come out and be available? I can absolutely say that. So the book is out on February 13th, and I am doing the kickoff event in New York City at New York Society for Ethical Culture on February 16th at 7 p.m. If you go to their website, you can sign up now. Thanks so much. Thank you very much, Brian. Brian Lehrer, A Daily Politics Podcast, is an excerpt from my live daily radio show, The Brian Lehrer Show, on WNYC Radio, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern Time, if you want to listen live at WNYC.org. Thanks for listening today. Talk to you next time. <music>